Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right. Let's pick up where we left off. We're in Acts 13. Okay, for those that... Did everybody find their chapters to remember out there? You know? Yeah. Okay. Um, Acts 13 and 14 is what? First missionary journey. All right. I know, I forgot. Yeah. 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 Sure. <laughs> um, I want to know, do you know in the Bible where it talks about um, the land have to rest after six years? Or after seven years? Yeah. Somewhere in Leviticus, I think it is. I think it's somewhere in Leviticus. Yeah. Um, but in Acts 13 and 14, we have Paul's first missionary journey. Okay? Yes. Now, where did they? Where were? Where was Paul when he was called? Antioch. Antioch. Mm-hmm. Which one? Antioch? Yeah. Antioch. No. There's two Antiochs. There's two Antiochs. There's Antioch of Syria. All right. And that's where Paul was. There's another Antioch over here. And don't don't get I'm not it's not the exact dot where it should be, but it's close, all right. Um, but there's another Antioch, there's two Antiochs. Okay. Um, now in the church it was the Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. Here we have the calling of Paul and uh, Barnabas. How were they called? Yep. How do they know? How did the Holy Spirit communicate this? Well, Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work which I have called them to do. Doesn't really say, does it? Could, 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 you know, could there have been a voice from him saying, I'm Saul, Barnabas. I mean, sure, right? Could have been that. Probably, you know, me being the anti-supernaturalist I am. Yeah. I sort of think that, you know, as they were praying, as they were ministering, as they were serving the Lord, what happened over time with Saul and Barnabas? They started having a, what? They felt a conviction. They felt a conviction, a desire uh, to, to go and to... To maybe, you know, they were talking together and say, hey, you know, wouldn't it be neat, you know, to go and 
take the gospel, you know, to some other places. And, you know, as time went on, that became greater and greater and greater and greater conviction until finally they just told the guy, say, hey, you know, we really feel that the spirit is calling us to go to a particular spot. Could it have been that way? Sure. Well, didn't say it didn't say a prophet did. A prophet could have. Yeah. How did the Holy Spirit talk? Did the Holy Spirit talk verbally? Did he talk through a prophet? Did he talk through a conviction? You know, we're not really told. All right. But one thing I do know is this. For the most part, how did Paul do, work his ministry? Did, and how how did that? How was that? In practical. He would, yeah, he would want to do something and pray about it. Holy Spirit, let him know where he Yeah, there was, there was, there was. How did he decide where to go? For the most part. And then sometimes somebody would say, like, come over to Macedonia. Well, there, there, you, you certainly have the supernatural element. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, you have the Macedonian call, which is. Genuinely a supernatural event. Um, you have other events in Saul's or Paul's life where there certainly there's a supernatural element. But, you know, for the most part, where he decided to go is he looked at a map. Yeah. And said, well, I'm here. Where do I go next? Well, where does the road go next? And that's where he went. All right. You know, one of the little pieces of information I learned in writing this paper I'm working on is that even before Paul got to Rome for the first time, for example, there were already pockets of Christians in Rome. Mm -hmm. And there were uh, Christians uh, over in Asia Minor heading towards China, mm -hmm. India. They, they were all over the place. Right. There were little pockets here and there. But one of the things that, that I, here's the reason I say that. And the reason I bring this subject up is that I've known people in my life that have so mysticized the will of God that they wind up doing nothing. All right. Um, you know, one one particular friend of mine that I'm I'm very much aware of. Um, you know, he was the best man at my wedding, actually. You know, every time I turn around, he said, "Well, you know, I'm praying about this or praying about that," and. You know, I'm sitting there saying, well, you know, a decision on that is like a real no-brainer. What are you praying for? Um, but he was making us, you know, he's, I don't know whether he was just deceived or whether he thought that was the way it is. But he had so mysticized the will of God that he made dumb decisions. And somehow it was all God's fault. Um, and there are Christians today that are, you know, I'm. I'm praying for God's will. I'm praying for God's will. I don't know what God wants me to do. And I sit around and do absolutely nothing. Um, you know, and, and I've asked people, I said, well, you know, does how, how hard is it to steer a parked car? <laughs> you know, that's a tough, you know, you ever try to turn a, a docked boat around? It's kind of tough to do that. Um, you need to be going and doing something. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, as you're going and as you're doing, allow God to do the leading. Allow God to open doors, close doors, you know, things. But, you know, you know, this particular guy, I remember several people I've known in my life that, you know, well, I think God wants me to do this. 
and I head off in that direction. They have a little bit of adversity. Oh, I think, oh, God doesn't want me to do that. Oh, what does God want me to do? Oh, he wants me to do this. And they, 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 they bounce around like a ping pong ball trying to figure out what it is. And if I look at Paul, Paul says, I'm going to go that direction. And he kept going until he hit a brick wall. Yeah. You know, he kept going until it was impossible for him to go anywhere else. He didn't let a little bit of adversity throw him off his game plan. And for the most part, Paul's ministry and Paul's um, journeys had everything to do with where did the road lead next? You know, if I'm in Thessalonica, there's only a few places that the road goes. It's not like highways today where you have them all over the place. The next stop after Thessalonica, you can go either over to Italy, to Rome, or you can go down in the, into Greece, go down towards Berea, down towards Athens, down towards Corinth. That's where the roads went. Paul was led for the most part by the map. Although there's, that, there's certainly that supernatural element of prayer, of knowing that God wanted him to be a preacher, of taking the gospel to the next city. He looked at a map. Okay, where do we go next on the map? Um, and that's how he went for the most part. At, at some point, I haven't read that recently, but at some point, um, the Lord told Paul, forbid him to go to Asia. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. I would say, and both of them are together. That's what I'm saying. Both of them are together. It's not one or the other. It's both of them together. The Macedonian call was, a, was an example. You know, Paul is traveling through Asia Minor. He comes up to Ephesus. Now, at Ephesus, he can go one of three directions. He had come from the south, so I'm not going back that way. So I can go east into Asia. I can go north, right? Or I can go, well, there's an ocean over there. What do I do? And while he's there, you have the Macedonian call where Paul sees a man from Macedonia come over here. So that's how God led Paul to the next city. Paul did not sit in the middle of the road and say, where do I go next? And sit there and wait for some supernatural arrow to show him the direction all right. Um, he, in fact, when Paul was in Macedonia, not before he was in Macedonia, when he was at Ephesus where, in Miletus, where, did, where was he going to go? He, he said, okay, well, I got one of three directions. Let's try east. And whatever it says, it didn't work out, right? That was God saying, no, don't go that way. And he said, well, I'll go north. But, you know, that didn't work out either. But you know what? Yeah, Paul was doing something that most Christians don't do. He was actually in motion, right? And if you're doing something, God will direct you. There are people I've known that say, I don't know what my spiritual gift is, so I'm going to warm the pew till I do. Well, good night. You can warm the pew until you go to heaven. Um, try something. Check it out. Try this. Try that. Try, try doing different things, you know. Um, God can deal with you. If you're trying to do something, God can lead and direct and guide. And, but if you're just sitting there waiting for God to show up, you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to work out too well for you. And that's the thing it is with, with Paul. Paul was, he was going, he was going to be doing something. And all God had to do was just nudge him here and there to keep him going in the direction he wanted him to go in. 
So Paul, Paul and Barnabas, anyways, they received this call. It could have been by the audible voice of the Holy Spirit. It could have been through the, the prophets. And there are certainly prophets in those t- at that time. Um, it could have been through a, a deep inner conviction that had grown over the years because this appears to be something that happened over time, right? Because they were teaching and preaching. And that's one of the things you need to do. Teach, you know, if God's called you to teach and preach, teach and preach wherever you're at, you know? I think that there, they had bonded so closely and talked mm-hmm. about things, you know, rationally. And, and I think that the Lord just the Lord led them. them that way. Um, you know, I often tell people, you know, when Richard Fisher calls me and says, hey, you want to teach uh, Moody class this fall? You know, I say, well, let me pray about it. I'll get back to you. There's what's there to pray about, right? There's nothing to pray about. This is what God's called me to do. I do it, right? And I keep doing it until the doors close. All right? I don't have to sit there and pray about, is it God's will for me to teach Moody or not? I know what it is. It's like the priest saying, is it God's will for me to preach this Sunday or not? Well, duh. You're the preacher. Of course you're to preach. You know, is it, is it God's will for me to witness or not? Well, duh. Of course it is. It's his will for you to witness. You know, there are a lot of things you don't have to ask God about. You need to just go, be doing it. And then God will direct you. He will He will, He will. will move you in the directions you need to go. But you need to be going somewhere. You need to be in motion. Paul and Barnabas, you know, they started out, and all God did was just direct them into the places they were to go. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So where did Paul go? What was, what was the first part of his journey? Well, he went down to the seacoast and then over to Cyprus. So that's his first part. you got a map in the back of your Bible probably that lists it out. That's a much better map than I got. I'm drawing up there. All right. Yeah, right. I'll remember that come grade time. Um, yeah, I remember Jamie come great time. I'm just going to dock him 10 points to start out and make it oh, even for everybody, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, they also had John as their assistant. Which one, Who was this? John who? John Mark. John Mark. Okay. Now, who is John Mark? He wrote the book of Mark. Right. He wrote the book of Mark. Okay. Yes. All right. Barnabas. Um, now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found it. Where's Paphos on the island? I don't have my map in front of me. North or south? Uh, southwest corner. Southwest corner. Yeah, I think this is where Paphos. So they, they, of course, they were going to land up here, and they make their way through the island. And what are they doing while they're doing that? Well, they're preaching, teaching. All right. And by the way, Cyprus was well known, and, and of course, Barnabas is from Cyprus, right? So he knows what's going on there. Um, and as of course, as they're going down through Cyprus here, preaching and teaching the word of God. Um, they're establishing churches, possibly. And we know that later on, because in Titus, who's Titus? The He was he was left in uh, Crete. Excuse me, Titus was in Crete, not Cyprus. I'm sorry. But um, they're preaching and teaching. And they go down to Paphos, and they found a certain false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. What's Bar-Jesus? I 
son of or, and of course that's Yeshua Savior okay um, Joshua is the Old Testament form of that um, he's a false prophet a sorcerer do we have him today yes yeah TBN I'm sorry um, there's a lot of false prophets today there's a lot of false prophets and teachers today okay who say and, and and if you want to pick out the false prophet, it's who are they preaching? Are they preaching themselves? Or are they preaching Christ? Right? That that's really, you know, Christ. He's he's the central theme of our preaching and teaching. But this guy here was a false prophet, and he's with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Who Sergius Paulus? He's probably one of the Roman officials, a governor there. Um this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He had heard them preaching and teaching. And so he sends and he says, I want to hear what you have to say. All right. He was an intelligent man, um, you know, wanting to hear the latest teachings and, you know, philosophy or whatever. And see, you know, one of the things that they liked to hear in those days was the, what's the latest, you know, philosophical spin on things. You know, they didn't have Oprah and Geraldo and all of that in those days, but you know, when you had your traveling philosophers come to town, you want to go listen to what's the, what's the latest, you know, keen idea out there, you know. Um, but it says, Elimus, the sorcerer, for that was his name, withstood them seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. What faith? Faith in Christ. Why was he, why was he doing this? Why was Elimus doing this? Yeah, but Elimus means magician. He was a false. And see, here, here's the thing you gotta understand: Satan will do miracles to fool you. All right. So that's because somebody can pull off a little bit of a miracle or, or seem to have a certain kind of power doesn't mean that they're of God, right? Right. Can Satan do miracles? Yes. Sure. Look at the Book of Job. He was able to cause disease, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Kill his children, cause a whirlwind. You know, Satan's more powerful than you want to give him credit for. Yeah. Satan will do anything to keep people from believing in Christ. Anything. Even make them think that they're they're on God's side. I mean, that's the greatest deception of all, right? Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he said, well, I don't know who you are. That's the greatest deception of all. Satan, Satan doesn't care what you believe or what you do as long as it's not the truth. That's all, that's that's his interest. But, well, I mean, you know, we were in class a few weeks ago, and you said that you really didn't believe that God was doing miracles like he was doing them in those times, so, but you don't believe that Satan was doing miracles. I don't understand that. How, how, yeah, how, how would you tell the difference between the two? A miracle is a miracle. Yeah, and see one of the one of the difficulties, and you've got to you've got to evaluate this for yourself, but by and large, the bulk of the people doing miracles and wonders and signs, what are they preaching? So 
God can do anything he wants. God can do a miracle if he wants to do a miracle. But I don't believe God is doing miracles like I don't believe God is doing miracles like he did back then. Okay. And the reason here's the reason. Here's the main reason for that. And it's a good question. It's a very important question. The main reason for that is you got to look at what are these so-called miracle workers? What gospel are they preaching? And when you start looking at the gospel they're preaching, it does not mesh with the message of the New Testament. That's 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 really the, the, what, what tips you off as to what's going on. When you have somebody like 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 a Benny Hinn who claims to do miracles, but yet denies the deity of Jesus Christ. You've got a you're telling me he's doing miracles by what God or Satan? Well, stop and think about it. If you are preaching that Jesus is not God and you're doing so-called miracles, that he has. Um, Kenneth Copeland, Hagen, all of them deny the deity of Christ. Um, they deny essential components. You know, we're not talking about, you know, just an odd idea. We're talking about the, the, the core of the gospel message, that which either produces salvation or doesn't. They've got the deity of Christ completely messed up. Are they preaching the true gospel? No, they are not. And how do you evaluate that? You evaluate it by the word of God. You evaluate it by, we have the word of God now. I don't need a miracle to believe. I just need to believe what this says. I'm just saying, yeah. You need to evaluate that. And I know it's, it's, it's something you just need to ask yourself some questions on and, and research. But one of the things I would look for, if somebody who supposedly claims to be doing miracle kinds of things, and maybe apparently is, but yet they're preaching a gospel that contradicts the scripture. How do you evaluate that? But if Satan's the great deceiver, and he tries to do mimic God in so many mm -hmm. things, would he also be giving someone the power to do these miracles to validate their message? Yeah. And see, all I'm yes, and and what I'm what I'm encouraging each one in here to do is that you have the truth in your hands. We have the truth. We have the Bible. We have the Word of God. That is the great evaluator. That is what you evaluate every miracle, every message, every preacher against. All right, and when you have someone who apparently does signs and wonders and things like that and yet they do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ they they may even be in, in theological error regarding his deity and things like that your only conclusion is that that is not of the truth that is not true and remember Janice and Jambres was able to mimic miracles back with Moses and the problem is, if, if, if now, if, if today you're looking as, at miracles as the validator of truth, the world is going to be set up for the greatest deceiver of all time, who is who? The Antichrist, who's going to do miracles. Mm -hmm. And the world is going to follow after him as yeah. God. Yeah. And all I'm saying is that we as believers, God has given us a more sure word of prophecy we have the word of God that, that enables us to evaluate. And you have the spirit of God. Right, but I'm saying I've never heard Benny Hinn preach against or, or do, you know, what you're saying. You've heard well, God, I mean, it, it's on record. Any problem or 
it's it's on record. Yeah, it's on record. You could there there are. Okay, well, if you if you do some research. Well, I, you don't you don't have to believe what I believe or, or anything. You can go look it up for yourself. You don't need me to tell you that. I mean, they've been quoted. They've got written books and materials and and things that they've written, and, and you can go find it yourself. You don't need me to say that or, or whatever. Um, you can research. I would encourage you to research that on your own. You know, and all I'm saying is, whoever you listen to, make sure they got the right Jesus. That, that boy, you get the wrong Jesus, you're messed up. You know, make sure it's the right Jesus. Um, but this guy here, he was he was able to evidently do some kind of sorcery, right? Because right. he was known as a magician. All right. And uh, he's trying to turn this guy away from the truth. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, fall of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord and and now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So Paul dealt with this guy head on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he blinded this guy. Now, who blinded the guy? God did. And why did God blind the guy? Because God is trying to make a point to Sergius Paulus of how who's really who, right? All right. And Paul, of course, being an apostle, did have, you know, healing, signs and wonders. He had, he was, you know, he was, he was given that by the Lord for the specific purpose of doing what? Proclaiming the gospel. And you got to admit that the Christ that Paul was preaching was the real Christ. All right. And so he confronts the sorcerer head on. And of course, what what was the response of Sergius Paulus? Well, good night, you know. I got to believe this, and he said he believed, and of course, it had an effect on other people around it. All right. Um, Proconsul was like the governor. He was like the Roman governor of um, this. Roman had divided their their empire into provinces. He had senatorial and imperial provinces. And uh, they put governors or proconsuls in, in charge of them. I can't remember offhand which is which. Um, the imperial provinces were controlled by the emperor. He assigned who was going to be there. They were sort of like the outlying frontier type things. And then you had the imperial provinces, which were more the, the central core main, and they were not imperial, the senatorial. And the Senate, the Roman Senate, were the ones who put people over them. Um, and I can't remember one's a proconsul and one's the governor. It, it depends on which province they're over, what kind of province they're over. But he was sort of like the governor here of um, of this this um, this province here, provincial governor. Um, and then uh, what happens? Well, um, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue of the Sabbath day and sat down. So where did they go now? Well, they went from Cyprus, I think, up here, right? To Perga. To Perga. That was the coastal town. And from there, they went interior to Antioch of Pisidia. All right. Now, what is Pisidia? Pisidia is a Roman province. 
You look at Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, you had provinces there. All right. And you had Pisidian Antioch, which is different than Syrian Antioch. It's two different cities. All right. And Antioch, I think, is right on the border between Pisidia and another one of the Roman provinces there. Well, that, he, he made his, that was the launching from Antioch. Yeah. Syria. Yeah. Pamphylia and Cilicia mm -hmm. were two of the provinces. They were the coastal province. Pisidia was inside. Galatia was in the north. There's Phrygia and Cappadocia. All right, these are provinces. These are, these are, you know, like states, if you want to think about it. Okay. So they come up there. And where did they, uh, where did they go on the Sabbath day? The synagogue. Why did they go there? I thought Paul was the, was the apostle to the Jews. Not yet. Not yet. Not fully yet. He went to the synagogue which would be the most logical place to find a bunch of religious people on, you know, like if you're going to go find a bunch of religious people on Sunday, where do you go? To a church, you know, and where do you go on? A, you go to the synagogue. Um, and after reading of the law and the prophets, the rules of synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation from the people, say on. Why did they, now why did they do this? Got Go back to the culture. You got to think of culture. Why do they do this? Why do they have Paul and Barnabas speak? And culturally, in the synagogue, mm -hmm. if you had a visitor, they were the ones that were invited to preach. When, when, when Christ showed up in Nazareth, why did they have him speak? Well, he's the itinerant preacher. He's the one that will have read the law. And what happened usually is they would read a section of the law and then somebody would give a little speech about it, you know, like a little sermonette or whatever like that. So, you know, they, they let on. They, they had, you know, these are two guys from out of town. They're Jews. They're religious. Uh, you know, this guy here seems like he really knows his stuff. Let's have him give us a word of exhortation. See what he says. You know, that was the culture of that time. Then Paul stood up. And motion with hands said, men of Israel, and you fear God, listen. Who, the men of Israel is who? Those who fear God is who? The Gentiles who are there, the God-fearers, right? And then, I'm not going to read this, but he gives a little spiel here about the Jewish history. And I say, well, why is he starting out with Jewish history? He's going to suck them in, right? He wants them to understand, right? If you get a bunch of them saying, amen, 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 and then you drop Jesus the Messiah on them, you know. He's a Jew's Jew. Yeah. So, so what he's doing here, I have a better tone than that. That's a sissy tone. Yeah. Yeah. That's my other one's a bird. Okay. But what is he doing? Is he is bringing the Jews in and giving it really a condensed? Now, is this everything Paul said? No. Probably not. Knowing Paul, you know, if he preached so long, some guy fell out the window asleep. You know, he, he went on a little ways here. 
But it, it gives the gist of what he was trying to say. He's bringing him in. He recounts Israel, and then he talks about John the Baptist here. Um, and, then, and then he brings in Christ, who was crucified. All right. Um, and really, he's weaving the whole gospel presentation in with what? The Old Testament law. He's saying, you know, guys, our law talked about this. You should know this. I'm going to mention this. This is not anything new. And, and he's trying, he's recounting the history to give them an understanding that Jesus Christ. See, the problem with the average Jew is, is they thought Jesus Christ is this aberration, you know, and what he's trying to bring them to understand is Christ was not some aberration. Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies we've been looking for and we missed. All right. And that and that's what he's trying to bring them in to understand and why he's given this historical background and weaving it in. And if anybody could do this, who would it have been? Paul. I mean, this guy knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, inside out, upside down. He could he knew the scripture and could could relate it. And that's exactly what he's doing. God raised him from the dead. And he was in verse 31. He's seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee, Jerusalem, as witnesses of the people, we declare to you the glad tidings that promise made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, that he has raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today have I begotten thee. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. Paul is weaving in the psalmic passages, the messianic psalms. Speaking of Christ. And of course, if you read Psalm 2, what is that? That's probably one of the greatest messianic psalms in the Old Testament. Kiss the son lest he be angry. You know, he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. And God's saying, I've set my king upon my holy hill. And it says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Speaking that of Messiah. Um, now, when, when it talks about Christ as being the Son, understand what that means. Why does, God, why does the Bible use that term, the Son of God? What's it meant to convey? What concept is it meant to convey? It's a relationship. What kind of relationship? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's an essence, there's a oneness of purpose, a oneness of goals, all right? The Bible does not teach Jesus Christ as the Son of God in the sense of generation, right? Because he's eternal deity. There is no such thing as a beginning for Jesus Christ. That's the Arian heresy of Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism and everything else. Christ is the eternal second member of the Trinity. And some have said, well, and, and, and for you... Cough your skull up, hear me out. It does not necessarily mean that from eternity past, he was known as the son. He was the word. He was God. All right. Was the father always the father from eternity past? You know, if we, if we were able to somehow get in a time machine, go back before time began, which you can't do. Would you? Yeah. It, the, 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 
Yeah. The point is, here's the point. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are accommodational terms to help us understand the inner workings of the Trinity. They are not to, to, to tell us that the Father is the Father in the sense of he is the generator of the Son. It's not to give the sense that from eternity past, the Father had a superior role to that. Did the Father have a superior role to the Son in eternity past? They're the same. There's, there, there's no diminishing of power or, or essence or, or, or between them. But in redemption, what do you see? In redemption, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, eternal, submits himself willingly, wholeheartedly, gladly to the first member of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit gladly, willingly, of his own will, submits himself to the Son to point people to the Son. The Son points people to the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. There, there's a unity in the Trinity that, that is beyond our ability to really comprehend and understand. Are they really three members? Yes. Three distinct personalities. Go figure that out. I can't. Nobody's been able to sort that one out. That's the mystery. There are three distinct personalities. In salvation, what did the Father do? He chose us before time began. What did the Son do? He became the substitutionary sacrifice. What's the Holy Spirit's role? He regenerates us. He keeps us. He convicts us of our sin. He maintains the relationship, the life that we have in Christ. All right? All three members are involved in your salvation. All three members have a distinct role, although all three members are 100% totally, completely equal in every attribute, every essence, everything. The only difference is there are three distinct personalities. All right. And that's something we can't sort out in our own finite human thinking. A, a, a unity within three. You know, unity within three. Yeah. There's one God manifested in three distinct personalities. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're so designated instead of ABC, one, two, three, to help us understand their relationship. Normally, what does the Son usually do in, in human terms? He admits to the Father. That, that's how it was in the drama of redemption. Christ said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who sent him? God the Father sent God, the second member of the Trinity, into the world. And it's not like Christ lost the arm wrestling match and eternity passed and wound up being the Savior. It was a willingly glad, wholehearted. We don't understand that. Christ, Christ, Christ was thrilled to, to do the will of the Father. It was, it brought joy. The Holy Spirit is thrilled to do the will of the Son and the Father. The Father is thrilled to glorify the Son. There's a, there's a unity. All three of them are on the same page in a way that we'll never understand. And Paul here is talking about using their old, own scriptures, how that the Messiah, the second member of the Trinity, was predicted in the Old Testament to become the savior of the world. 
Well, what do you think it means? You know, and, and, and there's a fine, there's a fine, there's a role, it's a role thing, really. Was, in the Old Testament, what name did Christ have in the Old Testament? He was the angel of the Lord, right? Right? Is he ever seen as the son in the Old Testament? Only in what? In expectation. Right? Or in Isaiah. Right? Remember? Unto us a son is given. It's only in expectation. All right? That he is known as the son. In the Old Testament, he is he is a deity. He is 100% totally divine, eternal, co-equal with the Father of the same essence. But his title and role of son was something that was an incarnational term. All right? And all you're doing is using the labels. Don't And don't make the mistake of saying, well, you're saying that he became the son. All right? If you say he became the son in the sense of a title, yes. If you're saying he became in the sense in the sense of his being, no. Right? Yes. The Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus was begotten by the Father in the sense that he was create. He had his God created him. All right. Well, by definition, if God, if you are, if you are a created being, by definition, you are not God. Can God create God? No, God can't do that. God can't create another co-equal, co-eternal, self-existent being, right? Because by definition, self-existence means you don't depend on anybody else to exist. Therefore, God cannot create another God. All right? He can't do that. By definition, how many sovereign beings can you have in the universe? One. One. Yeah, God is saying you can't have two sovereign beings. So, so in Greek or Hebrew or whatever, what, what was the literal translation of that? Huyas, son. Begotten is monogene. Um, monogene is, is, is only begotten. Um, and um, there was a time when he did become the son. When did Christ, the second member of the Trinity, eternal, become the Son? When he stepped into time to become the Savior. Okay? He became the Son of God. He used his phrase, Son of God, to show his relationship to us. You know, because we couldn't figure it out otherwise. There has to... You know, our brains are so finite, we can't understand the Trinity even when it's explained to us. So the best he's doing is trying to use some kind of term that we can hang something on to understand how they relate. All right? And that's why you have the term son, father. That's the term in the Old Testament. The, when you see the angel of the... Okay, angel, understand what angel means. The, the word angel means messenger. That's what the word me it means. Um, the messenger of the Lord. And when you look at the Old Testament, what you find is in passages where it's about the angel of the Lord. 
the angel of the Lord has the ascriptions of deity. All right. For example, when Manoah saw the angel of the Lord, he says, we're dead. We saw God. Remember Hagar? When she saw the angel of the Lord, she said, this is Jehovah Roy, the God who sees. So the angel of the Lord is given the, the attributes of deity, which, which help us understand that that is who it is. It is the second member of the Trinity in view there. Okay. Um, and that, that you just find by going through the Old Testament, looking at the angel of the Lord, looking at how it's used, and you see that there are ascriptions of deity given to the angel of the Lord. Okay, and all remember the angel means the messenger of God, the messenger of Jehovah. And who is Christ? He's the messenger. Christ said, you know, I came down to bring you the message. You know, how does God communicate to his creation? He has to become one of them. You know, he has to step into time. And what in Christ, what you have, if you remember the uh, analogy of our box on the board, where the universe is inside the box, the only one outside the box is God. So how can God outside the box communicate to us in the box? He has to step in. And how did he do that? In the person of Jesus Christ. He stepped into time. And Paul is relating Christ, Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified on the cross to being the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's using the Old Testament to show that. All right. And he, um, he, he preaches his sermon here. Um, and then it says here, verse 42. I, I'm not going to read the whole sermon. You can read that. Um, 41 is a quote from Habakkuk. Um, I mean, did Paul know the, how many people have read the book of Habakkuk? You know, hopefully all of you have, you know. Yeah, an Old Testament survey, you had to. Yeah. You probably haven't touched it since. Yeah. But um, it's interesting, verse 42, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Jews left, and what did the Gentiles want? They wanted to hear it. What are the Jews thinking? Heretics. Now, in the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul. Who's the devout proselytes? The Gentiles, the God-fearers. And Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So after the meeting broke up, a bunch of them stood around wanting to learn more about the message. Because evidently, and again, this is the essence of what Paul preached. This wasn't the whole message. This is an encapsulation of the major points. And whatever Paul said had a, had a pretty profound impact on them. I mean, they, they realized that whatever he said was very convincing. And he certainly knew the Old Testament, how to weave it in to show that the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament was the Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And that was all predicted. That was predicted in your old in your own scriptures. It talks about that. And then, yeah. Well, Paul's stoning is coming up. Yeah, he's going to get his. He's going to get his. But, uh, you know, one of the differences was, 
you know, you're preaching to a much smaller crowd here. You also have in here not only Jews, but who else? Gentiles. A lot of God-fearers and Gentiles. You're not preaching to 70 pompous Jews, you know. You're not in Judea. You're not, you know. I mean, there's some things you can say to the to the Roman Catholic priests down the road that you can't say to the Pope, right? Um, when you make these statements about uh, the Paul preaching preached so long, the guy fell out the window. You can't leave it there. You got to tell him that the guy died, and Paul brought him back to life. He did. Yeah, he, he did. Talked about Manoah. You can't leave it hanging there. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to say that. As a result of all the Who is Manoah? Manoah, he was, I don't know who he was, but anyway, they had his father. He's Samson's father. Samson's dad, right. I was going to say that later on, Samson was born. Yeah. But remember, when Manoah saw the angel of the Lord, Manoah says, we're dead. He told his wife, said, we're going to die because we've seen God. All right. But you made the story hanging. Yeah. All right. But anyways, uh. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together here. I mean, there the, the buzz all all during the week is what was these, these two guys said, right? So the next week, uh, everybody shows up at the synagogue, and when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Why? Jealousy. Envy and jealousy. You know, they've been trying for a long time to get that bigger crowd together, and all of a sudden, the crowd shows up. And they're ticked because they're not the ones doing the doing the drawing. Do you think this Sabbath day was Sunday? No, it was Saturday. Okay. Um, the church had not made this is synagogue, right? Jew. So when are they going to meet? Saturday. Sabbath. This was a Saturday they were meeting. All right. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be first spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves worthy of ever unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. All right? That, by the way, is a quote from Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. Um, Paul is saying, you know, I came to you guys first, and you guys don't want to hear it. So what am I, so what is he going to do? What you see now is really the the turning to the Gentiles, where, where where Paul would still go to the synagogue because that's a, that was the quick hit. But basically, who is his ministry going to be to now? The Gentiles who hear it. And remember what Paul said in Romans chapter two. He says, "You know what? You're better off to be a Gentile who hears the word than one who doesn't." Who's the true Jew? The one who's a physical descendant of Abraham, or the one who believes God? Who's the true Jew? It's the one who believes God. Mm -hmm. Who's the true circumcision? Is it the one who's got cut by the knife, or is it the one who circumcised the heart? See, and what you see now is is, is the the shift from the Jew to the Gentile. All right, and Paul makes it clear that listen, we've been called out. And by the way, what was God's original design for Israel? To be a light to the world. And what did they do? They put it under a bushel basket. And they patted themselves on the back saying, isn't it nice that God loves us and is going to send all those Gentiles to hell? But God he did. He did. He rejected Israel. And as it says in Romans, to provoke them to jealousy. Okay. All right. But well, what you see here, 
See, one, one thing you can here's another here's another way to tell a false teacher from a true one. What's the false teacher interested in? Not the false teacher. What is the true teacher interested in? Truth. Truth. They don't need to be the big guy on the block. They don't need to be the expert. They don't need to have the biggest church. Their interest is is in the truth. And how do you spot a false teacher? Their emphasis is in the numbers, their position, their prestige, their pride. And so how do you tell, in this case, yeah, the control, the true from the false? The false, pre, the false teachers wanted to be the ones that were the experts. They wanted to be the ones who were listened to. And when somebody came along and preached the truth, they didn't want to have any part of it because they were not the ones in control of it. They wanted to be the ones who were. What did Christ tell the Pharisees? He says, you guys want to sit at the chief places at the feast and be known as doctor, doctor, rabbi, rabbi. You guys want to sit in the most prominent places. You want to. You're interested in all the acclaim. You know, the true prophet of God, the true preacher, could care less about what accolades he gets from people. He's interested in the truth. These men were not interested in the truth. They were interested in their own prestige and power and position. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed on eternal life believe. Oh, there's a Good passage right there. Look at that. What's it say? Now, you can't read that and not be a Calvinist. Now, again, the appointing to eternal life was God's business in eternity past. But what did Paul have to do? Now, what did Paul have to do? He had to preach. And that both of those go together. Paul couldn't say, well, you know, if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they're not. He preached the word of God. And those to whom he preached, if they were the elect, what did they do? They believed. But Paul didn't get hung up on that piece. And neither should us. Neither should we. We should not be hung up on that. We should not be hung up on when we preach saying, well, I'm not going to preach because, you know, if they're saved, they're saved. If they're not, they're not. I'm not going to worry about it. No. Paul says, Paul persuaded men. So that those who were who are not yet saved could be saved. Those who are elect would be saved. How does salvation come? By hearing the yeah, word of God. Yeah. If you know, if you're if you're elect, you're going to hear the gospel and believe. That's the bottom line. And, but you know, we tend to beat that hold out. Yet the Bible does never go into a lot of detail. Keep discussing at the middle of this. Mm-hmm. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. How was that done? Off the mouth. I mean, you have believers and they're going telling other believers and the whole region is hearing it. And what happened? But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Sounds like uh, the political process today, right? If you don't say what you want to hear, you persecute them. By the way, the Jews were very good at this. And it says here they raised up devout and prominent women. It's interesting. This is a good paper topic. Some of these cities had some very prominent women that led them. Were they preachers? No. They were just they were just powerful, wealthy women. I'm kidding. And and and, and in this particular area there was some they, there's an historical note on this that there were some that were 
you know, that were very prominent, you know, a matriarchal almost um, government. But uh, they raised up the wealthy, the important people, and uh, stirred up a persecution, expelled them from their region. They shook out dust off their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So where do they go next? Iconium. Now, where is Iconium? Is it down or up? I think it's up like this, isn't it? No. It's, it's like, I can't remember. It's right there at Antioch, and then you got to go like to the straight to the right a little bit. All right, so here's, okay. So come, coming down. Um, All right, this is bad. It's close. Yeah. All right. It's coming down. All right, so the next thing you do, so and how did he go there? Well, there was a road that went that way. All right, so he goes to Iconium. And it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and the Greeks believed. So they do the same thing in Iconium. They have this massive revival. People are believing. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. Why? Why was the signs and wonders done? To validate. Yes. And not only was it validated through their signs and wonders, but it was validated. Here's the important thing. It was validated by what else? The word that It was validated by the signs and wonders. But what did Paul and Barnabas, when Paul and Barnabas preached, what did it also line up with? The word. The word of God. Both of them were together, right? They weren't doing signs and wonders and preaching heresy. All right. They were preaching the word of God. And when Paul was talking about how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to the Messiah and pointed to this and did signs and wonders, it just validated that what he was saying was true. And again, it always it always lined up with the Old Testament scriptures. But what happened? Well, the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, into the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So now where did they go? And where's that at? Is that down? I, I should get my map out. They're coming down. They're going around in a, in a little bit of a circle here. They're going down here, Tyconium, Lystra, and they come down to Lystra and Derby. All right. And how do they go there? Well, that was the road, okay, that went south. All right. And that was the that was the populated area. So now they go to Lystra. In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Here's a here, here's a perfect opportunity to show Christ or show God's miracle power. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Now this is interesting. This is the first time we're said that the man had faith to be healed. Right? Now, now, now understand. All right. New Testament healing does not necessarily depend on the faith of the person being healed. This case, there was that element, but in the guy with, you know, the guy at the, um, in Jerusalem, there wasn't. All right. 
And he said with a loud voice. Now, how did they know? They just could tell. Paul, Paul had had the the communion with the spirit that we don't have. I mean, he was an apostle. Um, And he said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying that Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. God. All right. Yeah, and well, you know, the, you know, you, you're the average Lystran person there. You see this guy who's been sitting there for the last thirty years. He can't walk, and he's running around, jumping up and down in the air. What are you going to assume? Something supernatural is going on here, right? Now it's interesting. Um, somebody actually did a study of this. There was a a folk tale in this area about the gods who did come down and the people didn't believe. And I, I can't remember the, all the details of this. Read I mean, it might, footnotes. huh? Read your footnotes. It might be here in the footnote. Well, it's in the, if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, there's a footnote on that. But it talks about how the gods came down. And, and, and in fact, um, let's see, let me, let me read this here. Um, the strange reaction by the people of Lystra to the healing had its roots in local folklore. According to tradition, the gods Zeus and Hermes visited Lystra incognito, asking for food and lodging. All turned them away except for a peasant named Philemon and his wife, Balkis. The gods took vengeance by drowning everyone in a flood, but they turned the lowly cottage of Philemon and Balkis into a temple where they were to serve as priests and priestess. Not wanting to repeat their ancestors' mistake, the people of Lystra believed Barnabas to be Zeus and Paul to be Hermes. So they had this folk legend type thing. And when, of course, Paul heals this guy, the first reaction in their minds is, wait a minute, Zeus and Hermes came back. And who's Zeus? He's the chief of the gods. Who's Hermes? The messenger, the winged messenger, Mercury. All right. And and Zeus and Jupiter are the same. And Hermes and Mercury. And why did they think Paul was Hermes? He's the one talking. All right. He was the one that was talking, right? So that's they they just you know, he's the one that was yakking, you know, so they figured he was Hermes. Yeah. So what happens here is uh Yeah, they called Paul Hermes, he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to gates intended to sacrifice with the multitude. They're talking in Lyconia, and of course Paul and Barnabas can't understand what they're saying, right? They don't understand the language. So they're sort of befuddled as to what's going on here. This whole city's in uproar. The priest goes and gets a couple of ox. He's going to bring them down and sacrifice them, you know, to to supposedly Zeus and Hermes. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude crying out. How did they hear it? Somebody interpreted for them. All right. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them. Now, why did they say that? What? Here's here's the thing. The starting point of the gospel to the Jews was what? Abraham. Starting point of the gospel to the Gentiles was what? Abraham. 
creation. So who is the bulk of these people? Gentiles. You see a large Gentile contingent here. Were there some Jews in Lystra? Yeah, there sure there were. Who, who's one of them who's a half Jew we know of? Timothy. Timothy, right? In fact, this is how Timothy met Paul when he was stoned. How do you like that? Yeah. Paul was stoned here in Lystra, right? Yeah. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. And that he gave, he did good, give us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. Of these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing them. They're starting from the, from the creation. God, the creator, the one who made everything, the one who created food, the one who created the rains and, and who gives us life. And they could, they could barely stop them from, from sacrificing. They were, these people are bound and determined to offer sacrifice. And then what happens? Well, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium show up. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. When did this happen? Well, probably, you know, he was there for a little bit of time. It doesn't give us like, you know, how many weeks or whatever. But, but you know, these cities are next to one another. So, you know, before long, the... Some of the Jews from Iconium and Lystra show, or, or Iconium and Antioch show up, and they turn the whole multitudes against Paul, who the people of Lystra then stone him and take him outside the city. That's what you did when you killed a robber or thief; you just dumped the body outside the city in the dump. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Did they legally do that? To a Roman citizen? They didn't know he's a Roman citizen. Mm -hmm. Legally, they couldn't. But they're a mob. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that illegally they do that they shouldn't do. Why did they try to stone Barnabas? I don't know. Probably because Barnabas wasn't the talker, Paul was. And Paul's the one, and evidently what's happened here is Paul's the one that's been stirring them all up because he's the one that's been preaching this, right? I mean, he's the spokesman. He's he's the he's the orator. He's the preacher. Barnabas is, you know, sort of there as a tag along. He's, you know, yeah, yeah. Get rid of Paul, and you know, we got this thing. But uh, they stoned Paul, who was the preacher. And uh, Paul talks about this later on in Corinthians about being stoned and thrown out of the city is is dead. Um, but God saved him. And when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So now they go down to Derby, which is the next city, right? And that's that's close by. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it badly, all right? And then they preach there a while, and then they go back through where they came from. Why? That's where the roads were. All right, they're going back. To Antioch, so you got to take the road back, you know. So they they go back through where they where they've just preached. All right, and it says here, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith, and saying, "We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God." So they're going back through these towns where evidently there is a small group of believers, right? 
even though they got moved, you know, kicked out, even though Paul was stoned in Lystra, there was a core that believed. Who's one of them that believed in Lystra that we know of? Timothy. Timothy and his mother and grandmother. And grandmother. Mm -hmm. All right. So there, there was certainly some a small group of believers. And now when they're going back through, who are they? Who are they ministering to? The believers, the small church, encourage them. And what are they basically saying? That through many tribulations, you need to enter the kingdom of God. What are they trying to get them to understand? Persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. It's normal. Christ said, in the world you have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. It's a normal part of the Christian life. And of course, they would be persecuted. A small town, becoming a Christian, people wouldn't do business with you. They wouldn't sell food to you. They wouldn't buy your goods. You couldn't find work. I mean, this was, this was a, you know, it cost them something to be a Christian back then. And when they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Appointed elders. This is the time when you see these elders showing up. How are the elders selected? Who did the selecting? The apostles here did, right? Now, later on, you have an appointing with the church. But here, Paul and Barnabas are the ones that are choosing the elders. And who are the elders? Remember, we talked about it. They are the shepherds. They are the bishop. The pastor, elder, bishop, overseer. Their job is to do what? Uh, feed, lead, and weed. He got it. That's probably something important to remember for next week. Feed, lead, and weed. Feed the flock of God, lead them, and protect them from false teaching. That's the job of an elder. And these guys here, how, how spiritually founded were these elders? Do you think they're new believers? Yeah. I mean, they're still sorting out an awful lot, right? But they knew more than everybody else, right? Now, of course, as time goes on, they would grow in the word and, and things like that. But there had to be some leadership there, some some somebody that to to weed, feed, and lead. And these might have been men that knew the word of God. They had knew the, known the Old Testament. They were, you know, they were not. They were not totally ignorant of the scriptures, and they were the ones that were the best able to lead the church. All right. And after they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. What's Pisidia and Pamphylia? They're provinces. All right. And then they preached the word in Perga. They went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they commended to the grace. They commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And when they come together. When they come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the Gentiles. This is the first missionary journey. Where did Paul go? He went to Asia Minor. Went to the island of Cyprus. And then basically he knocked off Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And by the way, it's interesting, on his second and third missionary journey, where did he still, where did he go? Same same place. He went back to check out the church and see how they were doing. 
And when he left the area after he had established the church, after there's a small church that, that was founded, it was very important to establish a leadership structure. Because if not, they would just know, nobody would know what was going on. And also, if Paul um, appointed the elders, what would that lend to the elder? Huh? Credibility. Credibility, authority. They, they wouldn't be, well, you know, you know who, who, who appointed you, elder? Well, you know, Paul did. Oh, okay. I mean, God, God wants a, there to be a leadership within the church. There needs to be a leadership within the church. You know, and um, Paul was very careful to to appoint godly men to do this, this this job. Okay, and unfortunately, it was men, not unfortunately, but just the way it is. It was men that was appointed because that's the God ordained role for pastors to be male leadership. Yeah, Don, you're. Wouldn't it be good to say or think about the fact that this is like nine to eleven years after. Paul, uh, after his training, then he's going to these churches, and it could be that there were a few Christians in these towns already. Um, there's no indication here that there were. There's no indication here that there were. Um, no doubt they might have heard about Christ. You know, they, they've gotten the news by then. You know, this is taken in the years A.D. 45 to 46. All right, right around in that area. And by the way, um, did Paul write to these churches? What did, what did he write to these churches? Which one? No? Not Corinthians was written to Corinth. Galatians. Why? Because Galatia is the big general name for this area. It was an area. Now, Galatia was a province, but Galatia was also this entire area. It was also known as this entire area. And so a lot of times when you're going through the New Testament, it's like, well, when was Galatians written? Well, was Galatia written to the Roman province, Galatia, or was it written to the area? And if you read Galatians, what was Galatians dealing with? What's the main theme of Galatians? Yeah, it's law and grace, right? And what what was the big problem that they were sorting out in Iconium, Lystra, Derby? The Judaizers. What were the Judaizers teaching? Well, you start out with faith, but you're but you're kept by the law. And why did Paul write Galatians to sort that issue out? Okay. Yeah, well, what, what Paul was trying to, well, the reason Paul wrote Galatians is because, you know, you're a Jew, you've been so steeped in, in the law all your life, it's kind of hard to understand grace. What do you mean grace? And the error that was made is, well, okay, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by faith, but how do I maintain my salvation once I have it? Well, I got to get circumcised, I can't eat pork, I got to do this, I got to do that. And Paul is saying, no. You don't start out in the spirit and then get perfected by the flesh. You don't start out with grace and then perfect yourself by all the rules and the lists and the legalism. And that's what the Judaizers were teaching. They were coming in and saying, yeah, Paul gave you the salvation by faith business. But look, you really need to be circumcised. And you need to keep from eating pork and you need to keep the dietary rituals and you need to. 
they were adding all this stuff on top of grace. And when you do that, it was producing a work salvation, basically. Yeah. And don't be entangled again with a yoke of, yoke of bondage. Don't go. Who wants to go back to that? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Read read the book of Acts three times at least. Yeah, I, I think I said that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it once by just reading the book, right? Yeah. So let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day and for the time that we've had to study. Help us to remember this. Thank you for this time in your word. And help us to ponder its truths and apply them in our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.